Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Here at Dark Night of the Podcast, we, being Troy and myself, I like to think that we would, I dare say, pride ourselves in the fact that our episodes run at often, what I would say, an epic length. Uh, Our episodes are notoriously longer than the films that we are actually reviewing and dissecting. Today, (laughs) I'm going to say that that's not going to be the fucking case because this movie feels like it's three hours long. Uh, It clocks in at an hour 41, so that's going to be pretty damn close to, I think, the amount of time I can give this title, Life Force by Toby Hooper. And I'm not saying this is a criticism, but I swear to God, it felt like grains of sand crumbling through an hourglass watching this movie. It's an epic, epic, grand film. But my God, it keeps going and going and going. How what, How long did you say the, the, the version was you watched? So this movie clocks in at an hour and 41 minutes. Oh, see, I watched a version that was almost two hours long. Did you watch the one on Tubi? Yes, and it says it's an yeah. hour and... F- I, think, I think the time, actually the time that's listed on Tubi... Uh, when you pull up Life Force to watch it, the time it has listed is wrong. Uh, and when you start to play it and you see, you know, you can pause it and you see it, it's actually an hour and 56 minutes long. Yeah. So it. I wonder if they incorporate the, yeah. Well, do they incorporate the co- the commercial? Is that built into that? You know how there's always commercial segments? Because, yeah, I looked up the time frame online and it says an hour and 41 minutes. But I will say on Tubi, it says about an hour and 56. It sure fucking felt that. <laughs> it, it felt well, whether it was an hour and 41 minutes or an hour and 55 minutes it feels like it's a fucking four-hour movie it does it, it just does. goes on and on and on and but on that's not to say troy that's not to say that there are not things about this movie to celebrate it's so grand <laughs> absolutely and and to, to 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 think that toby hooper texas chainsaw massacre indie you know low-budget filmmaker toby hooper directed this film and right after right after poltergeist right after poltergeist it's kind of mind-boggling yeah um because this is a i mean this is definitely his grandest film by far by far Uh, i mean you take something like texas chainsaw massacre that he did on a hundred and forty thousand dollar budget um and compared to this and it's just it's just it's hard to believe it's the same filmmaker, but I guess that's what makes him such a influential filmmaker. I mean, because he is versatile and he has a great eye for not only horror, true like visceral horror that you get in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but also everyday horror, f- familial horror that you get in Poltergeist, and then this grand visual horror that we saw in Invaders from Mars and in this film. Oh yeah, I mean. 
when you look at this as its own entity and then you compare it to his other his other films, uh, one thing I got to say is is Toby Hooper, and I mean this in a, a very complimentary way, doesn't have necessarily like a fallback defined style. He's very good at conforming his style to the the genre or the subgenre that he happens to be focusing on. He does have several certain things that define him, his moments of grotesque, gruesome uh, gore. He loves like shriveled bodies and skeletons. And, you know, we've seen it in all of them. And that's a theme through all of his movies. But um, when you look at this movie as, as a standalone entity, it really doesn't feel like anything else he's made. And I really, I, like I said, I mean that in a, in a complimentary way to him because he manages to perfectly kind of conform himself to this grand space drama, this sci-fi horror, this film that perfectly takes elements from both science fiction and true like vampiric horror and blends it together to be this very strange, unique experience that I really can't compare to many things. But it definitely feels like a mashup of what I would say like a 2001 Space Odyssey meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets Dracula. And it makes for a very surreal and very cerebral experience. The film is definitely unlike anything I've ever watched. I will give it that. And I had mentioned this at the end of the Dolls episode last week that I had never seen this film. So this was definitely an experience for me going into it, you know, knowing that Toby Hooper directed it, I, I guess I just had a lot uh, different expectations as far as what it was going to be. And boy, were those expectations just, I mean, they went out the window, but not in a bad way. And while I, while I did make the comment that this film drags, it does. However, the vision, it's just so visually enchanting that, you know, even though there are long segments in this film where literally nothing is happening, the visuals, the color palette, the score just keeps you engaged. It's so well executed. And for the era, especially, there's a handful of effects that they try that they maybe don't 100% hit out of the park, but they never completely fail. Even the weakest effects are still impressive. But the strongest effects in this, the standout sequences in this movie, I think are rather breathtaking and really need to be acknowledged for being an amazing feat of what was doable with with a mixture of practical effects and like really like the beginning of incorporating digital green screen effects into these films. Well, and it's it's funny you say that because the special effects supervisor, the, the man that was responsible for the special effects in this film is is John Dykstra, who is considered to be the the pioneer of using computer uh, computer graphics for special effects in filmmaking. And he actually has won. I mean, we're talking he won. He's won three Academy Awards, probably his the best known film that he did the special effects for that he won an Oscar for was Star Wars in 1977 and then not too long ago he he won another oscar for spider-man 2 so this man definitely is a visionary and and pioneer when it comes to film special effects and i think that this film is a definite showcase of that i was thoroughly impressed there were okay so i will say at the beginning of the film and we'll get into this film because like we said we don't want it we don't want this review to be as long as the film. but uh there were a couple of facts at the opening the very beginning of the film where i was like oh god this is gonna be cheesy as fuck but no i was thoroughly impressed with many of the the effects especially the death sequences in this film 
are tremendously done. And for 1985, I would dare say this film was far ahead of its time in the special effects department. Well, and not just that, Troy, but the volume. And like, yes, like let's absolutely get into the meat and bones of this because of the fact that there is a lot of story here to dissect and it is convoluted. One of the, I don't want to say weak points, but one of the things you need to prepare yourself with Life Force is like there is a story and there are a lot of strings to it. There's a lot going on at once. You really have to like sit down and listen to what the people are saying because they're spewing monologues worth of information at a time. And it's also filled with like at times like confusing and strange cuts and jumps and time that don't necessarily like gel at first. Like you have to get used to the pacing. It kind of chooses its own pace that it wants to go at. Sometimes it drags and sometimes it'll just make a weird cut to something like where you feel like you're going to get more of a scene and all of a sudden, boom, like you get the solution and you're on, you're moving on. And in a way that helps the movie because it is already feeling kind of almost overbloated, but still it's, it's kind of abrupt when you first see it for the first time. Well, I, I will say, I think the screenplay is the weakest part of the film. And apparently Toby Hooper would agree. I, I read something as I was researching this film where he clearly stated that the screenplay was way too meandering and it should have had a much clearer focus. But interestingly enough, the screenplay was written, co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who actually wrote and directed one of my favorite horror films of the 80s, the classic Return of the Living Dead. And it really makes a lot of sense because there are several sequences in this film that reminded me of Return of the Living Dead. Especially towards the finale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. uh, we were before we get into. I just want to say we always, you know, we always give shout outs. I wanted to give a shout out because we did get our thirtieth five star rating, or actually our twenty ninth five star rating. We still got that measly three one, but we got a new review. Somebody took their time out of their day to write us a a nice little review on Apple Podcasts. So I want to say thank you to Shay Texas seven 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 for your wonderful review. We we are very glad to hear you enjoy the show. Um, we we love yes. it. We love you. We love our listeners. So, hey, if you if you're digging it and you haven't written us a review on Apple Podcasts yet, we would greatly appreciate it. We really would. And yeah, you're making making yeah, our week. We, really. It really does because you know this doing this podcast takes a lot of time and energy, and it really is. I would say very pleasing when you see people that are so so into what you're doing that they are going to take a few minutes to actually type something out to express their gratitude and express that they're really enjoying what you're doing. So we really appreciate that. And again, guys, if you're, if you're enjoying what we're doing and and you're caught up on all of our 70 episodes now, because we have to give a shout out, this is our 70th Roger. I'm feeling it. (laughs) I'm feeling it. I I was, I was feeling that watching this film, <laughs> but 70th episode, if you've, if you're caught up on all 70 of our episodes and you're just like dying for more content, check out our Patreon. We keep plugging it. I'm telling you guys, there's some great stuff we have. Oh God, we have about 15 or 16 full length episodes reviewing films such as Terrifier, Obsessed. Oh my God, with Beyonce Knowles. I know. Dark Skies was our latest one. We have some great ones coming up. So check it out if you're interested. But I, I think that we should probably dive right in 
and get our life force sucked out of us discussing this epic film. If we go too long, we're going to make it feel like the listeners are having their life force sucked out of them. And we don't want to do that to our listeners. We want to keep it a simple, sweet two hours, just like the movie, or so it seems. Um, (laughs) So yeah, uh, right off the bat, holy fucking credits. I mean, big trumpets. Those trumpets, Troy. I mean, they're like announcing it. They're like, get ready for something grand. We got something big coming your way. And they sure do. I just got to acknowledge, though, I mean, this film, let's put it out there. This film was pretty much a box office bomb. Oh, yeah. And a critical disappointment as well. But I want to say the talent that is behind this film from the screenplay, from the special effects, from the cinematographer, from the composer, none other than um, Harry Mancini who himself has is, has won several Academy Awards. He scored Breakfast at Tiffany's, Victor Victoria. I mean, we're talking the talent behind this film was so surprising when I learned how much of a box office bomb this film was. I feel like this is a film, though, that has the cult status that's evolved over time, almost kind of like a, to a lesser extent, like similar to Carpenter's The Thing. The Thing was a bomb when it first came out, but you know what? You can't deny the scale, like you said, the scale of talent at play here. Every, you know, the performers, Patrick fucking Stewart is in this movie. I'll take Patrick Stewart in anything. And he's great here. And he's only in it briefly, but he's great in the scenes that he's in. Across the board, behind the scenes, in front of the camera, the level of talent is just insane. And so because of that, even when this movie is like at its weakest points, you're still getting a very cinematic experience. Oh, cinematic is an understatement. I mean, this is such an epic, epic film in, in many ways. But yeah, the film opens with Henry Mancini's very beautiful score. It definitely gives me like Star Wars vibes. It's it's so orchestral. And we get a we get a voiceover uh, telling us that it's August 9th aboard this British uh, American uh, sh- shuttle space shuttle called Churchill, and the shuttle is on a mission to intercept and study none other than Halley's comet. One of the things right off the bat that kind of, I don't say pulls me out of the movie, but definitely makes it feel dated pretty quick is for everything that is advanced and really well done in this film, like the technology existing within the film does feel extremely dated. Like they're showing like computer sequences that those alone take like 10 minutes because the data is like processing in the computer and people are just like standing there suspensefully waiting for like the information to come through. (laughs) And like, you know, nowadays it really does feel... It it feels of the era. Uh, it it feels a, a, a pinch dated. But luckily, the strong aspects of the film make it so that's not really too big of an issue. But for the opening like few moments of the film where they're really focusing on the technology of the spaceship, or of, I'm sorry, like the shuttle that they're in, um, I, I almost found it comedically dated because it's just like these little like beep, boop, 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 little computers everywhere. And I'm like, God, we've come so fucking far. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's the, the I guess that's the the downfall of technology advancing so f- as fast as it has, and so any film, you know, from even five years ago that uses technology as a prominent part of its plot is going to feel dated. And this is definitely very eighties. It's very Commodore Apple Commodore computer like. But once we start getting into these 
more, um, you, you know, like you said, this is some early examples of like uh, computer effects and uh, green screen work uh, done really well. I mean, like for the most part, these shots are quite fantastic and stylized. So that also works in its favor because the spaceship is basically what's happening is this, the, the Churchill is arriving right outside of Halley's Comet, like right within the trail of Halley's Comet. And it all has this very green tint to it, this neon green. And it provides for some really just like stunningly vivid electric visuals of the spaceship like floating in space. And we eventually start to see sequences of the different astronauts when they suit up and they start to leave the shuttle, uh, all just bathed in this like neon green and it's just so vivid and so eye-catching and it really makes for some fantastic early visuals in the film yeah I, the film i mean i have to give the film credit because it really it starts right off with the the action the 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 precipice of what causes everything in the film to happen i mean it gets right into it because i mean right away all of the crew of this of the shuttle are, are standing in front of this computer and they notice that there is a like a large anomaly that is kind of trailing in the head of Halley's Comet. And as they zoom in to figure out what it is, they, they realize that this thing is 150 miles long and it's two miles high. And it's really, like I said, it's trying to like conceal itself using Halley's Comet to conceal itself as it's getting closer and closer to them. So we are introduced then to Colonel Tom Carlson, played by Steve Railsback, who decides he's going to take some of his men out and go into the comet to figure out what this thing is. What is this art of, what is this object? So there is this scene and this is when I was like, Oh God, there's this really, it's just, it's so cheesy. Look, I mean, it's, it's beautifully framed and you're right. The color the green neon green coloring is really cool, but there's just a scene of the, the guys coming out um, in their spacesuits and just floating to to the comet and it just to me it looked very like early 80s atari game it does but i almost dare say troy that because of the way they filmed it it almost feels like at times it looks very artistic and stylized like there's this whole moment they start to like come upon basically they find the entrance to this this tunnel that very much looks like the innards of a vagina I was going to say, I have that written down. This looks like a giant vagina. But like, once they start to like, you know, float into this, this, this gaping entrance, all completely, they're all perfectly distanced from each other the entire time as they just float through space. But it, it's so trippy and it's almost like psychedelic because of the coloration and everything that like the strange visuals in a way almost kind of enchant me. They almost kind of draw me in. It almost feels like it's intentional because everything about this is just already right off the bat, such a mind fuck. Yeah, I mean, it looks, it just looks dated. I mean, but I, I mean, I get what you're saying as well. But I do, I do th- like the fact that this, they go into this thing and it does look like a giant vagina. And even like Carlson, he's like, oh, I feel like I've been in here before. Very like sexually. I don't know if that was supposed to be like an innuendo, but it very much came off as that was the case. They, they enter this large opening, like this large chamber, and inside this large chamber, they are, there's a bunch of suspended dead 
they look like giant bats, right? Yeah. This this whole sequence I thought was really striking because all of these like bat corpses are just floating around in this, you know, uh, this ma- massive like, yeah, chamber, this huge like giant room that's just filled with these winged corpses and they're all just floating there and suspended. Um, and Tom floats up to one of them and and grabs its hand and manages to break the finger off. It turns, it starts to turn to like a husk, like dust. And um, it's it's really like right away you're thrown into a situation like you get these really strong space visuals, and then all of a sudden you do get this very like vampiric bat-like creature. And it's it's such a strange combination to be thrown at you right right away like that early into the film. But like it, neither elements let up. You have a consistent element of space and government running throughout this film, and you also have this heavy vampire vibe that sticks throughout the course of this film and this is a really good way to introduce both to be honest they like right off the bat again they give you both sci-fi and horror right away absolutely it's it's a very uh stunning set piece i mean it's just a visually it's just so overwhelming to look at there in this color this chamber and the lighting is like purples and greens and just as far as your eye can see you see these like dead huge dead bat creatures just like suspended in midair. Um, they go further into the, this object and they get into a, another huge chamber. And I really like this one because it looks like the, the all of the walls are like gold. Um, and in, in the middle of this huge chamber are three glass, like, what do you want to say? Coffins. And inside these coffin things, these, these glass coffin things are, three naked humans. Oh, they're human form. There is a beautiful woman and then two men who we don't see enough of. We don't see enough of them, no. I agree. And they're rather pretty themselves, those men. Leading up to this moment, I really have to take a moment, Troy, to acknowledge that the the building dread, pulsing kind of building dread as they start to move in on what ends up being this whole reveal here that you just described, the tone here, even though it's strange and it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around what's going on, it still is very heavy with dread and with just like kind of building suspense because you have no idea what the fuck's going on at this point. Um, and, and Toby Hooper does really good with this kind of material of letting things just start like build and build. You saw it in Texas Chainsaw when Pam's wandering through the house and she stumbles upon the chicken room. This is kind of the same thing, only with a totally, totally different scenario. But he takes his time with this whole sequence and Lee lets certain shots linger, like the whole shot of the vampire's hand or the vampire bat's hand being broken off. He really lets moments like breathe and take their time. So by the time you get to this great reveal of the three humanoid forms in the coffins, the glass coffins supported from the ceiling. Um, it feels like a, a great climax to this just building swelling moment. Well, yeah, that not only that, but it's also effective because you were expecting something to, you're expecting them to come upon something horrible, right? We just saw them, you know, have to go through this tunnel full of these creatures. So you're expecting that as this, the music swells and the suspense builds that they're going to find something really grotesque. But what it is, is it's three naked, beautiful people. So it kind of subverts your expectations a little bit, but right away, it seems like the men are transfixed by the female figure in this glass see-through glass chamber 
they're all going up to her and they're like sweating and they're like, oh, she's so perfect. And this, and the one, the guy says, yeah, she definitely is perfect. I've been in space for six months and she looks damn perfect to me. Well, and I got to say, Troy, that the, this Mathilda May is is quite lovely. I mean, she is such a strong presence over the course of this film. And she does quite well with this character. There's a very um, strange, almost like supernatural, not of this earth kind of vibe to her in general. Her visual aesthetic overall is just so perfect. It's almost elfin, you know? Um, and, and just her presence, as soon as she's brought into the mix, it does add this whole very unnatural kind of just uh, discomfort. Their, their fascination with her is just like, they're so entranced and she's such a picture perfect, you know, visual of what men think of a woman to be, which actually does play into the storyline. Oh yeah. I mean, there's many times that it's mentioned by the male characters in this film, like how beautiful she is, how irresistible she is. I mean, she's a beautiful woman and I guess it doesn't help. I mean, doesn't really do anything for me but it doesn't hurt that she is naked for half the movie like butt ass naked I mean, she's literally always naked yeah almost always yeah. i mean i would have liked to have seen that audition right you know could just walk in and nude and see who's who looks the best strut around <laughs> like just rock around the room with like a, a simple smile on your face yeah but overall i mean honestly uh, her introduction here i think is almost hypnotizing it's like hypnotic. And and oftentimes when she's on camera, she has a very hypnotic quality to her. So I really like her in this role. For as little as she says, she does quite a lot. Oh, no. She's very charismatic. And, you know, she really knows how to work the camera. And, it yeah, when, when she's on screen, your eyes are definitely glued to her. And it has nothing to do with, at least for me, that she's she's naked. I mean, there's just a – she just has such a strong screen presence. And she – plays the this like innocent naive innocent pure figure so well uh, because she does not seem intimidating at all carlson makes the what we find out is going to be a huge mistake but he decides they're gonna he's gonna take all of the three bodies back to the ship and take one of the um bat creatures back so that they can study it it's the worst possible fucking decision that they could have made. <laughs> Why? Why do you think after all you've already seen within just what, 10 minutes of the movie already, there's so many signs saying no, 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 but no, let's, let's take these mysterious humanoid bodies back to earth. That sounds like a great idea. Well, they do. And then I, I, I do appreciate that it, we don't see anything that happens at this point because it cuts to 30 days later. And we are at the, um, like the, mission control center building in, in Britain and the Churchill space shuttle has quit responding. They can't get a hold of it. And they're looking at the, the course of it. And they realize the course it's, it's course hasn't been updated since it left the comet 30 days ago. So they send rescuers from the space shuttle Columbia to go find the wreckage and see what they can discover. I got to say the space station scenes or, you know, the, any of these government kind of sequences are definitely some of the most, again, dated sequences within the film. For every moment in the movie that does feel entrancing or hypnotic or visually uh, sumptuous, there are scenes that are set in some of these government locations that feel very, very much 
of the era and the technology is so simple, but the story is continually kind of growing and evolving in a way that is very intriguing, even though the story is over, over bloated at times, it's still like, I got to say, like I, the way they pace it out, I'm very much like curious to get to the center of what's going on. And luckily they have some rather talented actors stepping up in some of these roles to keep the story moving. Oh yeah. To say that this plot is convoluted is definitely the understatement of the year so far, (laughs) but they do this, this crew, this rescue crew does find the wreckage of the Churchill shuttle and they go in and they see that it's basically been burned burned hollow um and they go and explore it and they find the dead bodies of the crew many of the crew people who right away don't look right yeah i mean some of the some of the camera angles and shots up to this point already i've got to say are visually very impressive there's a lot of motion there's a lot of rotating camera angles t- turning angling uh, and this whole sequence here where they, they enter the kind of the, the burned shell of the ship and they find all of the bodies very fluid lots of really nice motion and there's this really great startle shot where one of the first skeletons floats into view and that felt very it felt very toby hooper I, that was the moment where i was like okay he's coming through in some of these some of these moments because up to this point it's felt like such a grand epic i've been waiting for those those flares that hint of of his style you know well yeah it, it's very reminiscent of, of of a couple of uh scenes from poltergeist especially and you know as the film goes on you definitely see a lot of poltergeist influence uh, especially with like the strobe lighting that's used throughout the film the use of these skeletal looking dead bodies that just pop up out of nowhere so, I mean, in, in a sense, there are definitely, like you mentioned, there are definitely streaks of Toby Hooper in this, but overall, I just, you know, it's a real, like I said, it's just really an interesting comparison to look at his early work, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Eaten Alive, which were very low budget films. Uh, and to see him be able to pull something like this off, you know, this big budget epic is quite impressive, to be honest. Um, after they find the dead bodies of the crew they do go further into the churchill shuttle and find the glass encased bodies intact they have not been burned in fact they look brand new and the bodies inside are perfectly naked and clean and fresh it's definitely a creepy visual just seeing these three pristine bodies uh amidst all of this debris and wreckage it really is it's, it's instantly unsettling in such a simple way. You know something has to be amiss here. And there's this whole sequence that comes up where they, they, they get the bodies into basically like a medical station, like, you know, a medical center where we have this whole scene where this gentleman applies this very strange mask. Obviously, it's like a, it's a, a ventilation mask of the era with these really like two, these two like strange tubes running down the side of it and everything. Um, because clearly they don't know what these bodies could be contaminated with, what could be wrong with them. But, uh, even though the mask is kind of wonky, the, the sequence is still so creepy because you've got this really thick, heavy wheezing breathing coming through the mask, very like kind of Darth Vader almost as he makes his way around the female, uh, who is laying on a table with a, a sheet over her. And, you know, he slowly walks around her and he begins to inspect her. And he's looking down at her and the eyes open. 
and she sits up, titties out, full titties, uh, and she turns towards him, and there's this really this subtle little thing she does, Troy, that I fucking love. She looks at him, and she does this, like, sigh. She goes, like, <sighs> and, like, her body shifts, and she just stands up. And this leads to what is honestly, I think, a rather phenomenal sequence uh, and a great taste of things to come from the rest of the film. Yeah. While this is going on, there is, we get introduced to Dr. Bukowski who is kind of the the head of this research center where these bodies have been taken. He's being grilled by the, by a prime minister about how they found the case. How did it get open? He's like, I don't know. The case just popped open. We brought it here. Uh, We need to do an autopsy to figure out, you know, what these things are, how they died. And at, at the same time, there's this guard that's watching a newscast about comets and the the guy that the guy on the news is like comets used to be considered evil and the early word for them was disaster so kind of setting up this whole idea that this the comet haley's comet brought on this doom whatever's happening now right it's very eerie i love that newscast kind of it's a very like foreboding harbinger of things things to come i wonder why what it is about haley's comet that causes people to do horrible shit or why it's associated with horrible shit because remember that what was that cult remember that cult that they they killed themselves because they wanted to be yeah shot up on haley's comet and poor haley's comet's getting a bad rap but while this guy yeah so that other that that guy that's in the the mask yeah he he the girl gets up and she starts seducing him and it really doesn't take much for him to give in right he begins kissing her and in like a like kind of like the standout first standout special effects scene that you get you she begins to suck his basically suck his life force out of him until he is just the shriveled decaying looking thing and the only thing i can compare these things to i mean i don't know these are unlike any sort of like dead bodies i've seen i guess they kind of reminded me of a couple of the um the zombies we see in return of the living dead Particularly, remember the one that's that's strapped to the table that's only like a half a body? It looks like that. They look like that. And then there's a scene coming up that's very, I don't know if it was done purposely, but it's very reminiscent of that same scene from Return of the Living Dead. It is. You're absolutely right with that. What I find really impressive about this whole sequence is some of the tricks it, this film utilizes to represent like the blue electricity, the animated like light surges. It's very similar to kind of what we saw in Poltergeist. But again, just like Poltergeist, it it manages to not feel cheesy. It's done well enough that like it really just heightens and enhances the experience of what's going on because there's a lot of natural blue lighting flashes going off. So when you see these blue electric surges, they are rather effective. And what I really love with the sequence is when she starts to kiss him, they actually start to rotate. It's very dreamy. Like the two of them start rotating around as they're making out and the, the lights going off. And it's just this wild, wild visual, um, really strong introduction to what these things can do and how powerful they are. The, the blue lighting, the blue like electricity that becomes a very prominent part of this film. Like anytime 
one of these vampires sucks the life force out of a human, you get this like blue electricity that is is shooting out of their mouth and it's, it's really elaborate and it plays into the end of the film as well. But like, I think it looks really good. I mean, this was 1985 and, and this effect looks much better than many recent films I've seen that try to implement CGI. It just, I think this looks really, really good. I got to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks, again, it looks very stylistic. This whole film is very stylized. It all looks very dreamy. All of the camera motions and the the movement and the, the really kind of fluid, trippy cinematography, everything feels like a heightened reality. So when you see these moments with this really kind of exaggerated animated light going off, it's so over the top. It works. It, it works very well in this film. There is another doctor that's pretty prominent in the film, Dr. Falada. Um, and he, he is watching this happen on a security monitor. So he runs into the room. First of all, before that happens, I, I skipped it. Dr. Dr. Bukowski sees on the security camera what is happening. He runs into the room and the girl, the guard is now all shriveled up on the floor and the girl walks up to him and says to him, use my body. And they are beginning to kiss. And this is when Dr. Falada, another doctor, has seen this, what's happening as well. So he runs in to try to stop it. And Dr. Bukowski's on the floor and tells Dr. Falada that the girl got away. And she is now strolling through this research facility Butt ass naked. Causing destruction and mayhem everywhere she goes. It's almost like, you know, it reminded me almost of like Carrie. Or Carrie to the rage. <laughs> I was going to say, I was just going to say that with the glass yeah. shattering. Her casual stroll, you know, just through this building. And as guards run up to try to stop her, she uses her power. You know, she just raises her hand very casually and like the power like electrocutes them and shoots them away from her to render them powerless. And then yeah, she goes to the front of this building and explodes all of the glass in a very elaborate, well-done sequence. All of the glass windows start to explode and she walks out into the night. This whole sequence is really, really very impressive. And one of the things I think that's so appealing about her as the antagonist is, and you kind of touched on this before, is because she, you look at her, she's not intimidating, but it takes her so little to cause such destruction it she barely flinches she doesn't even her face doesn't even change she doesn't even blink and 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 she's choking out soldiers just by lifting her arm uh throwing people through the air sucking life forces out of people i mean this bitch is powerful she is powerful and she causes a lot of destruction in this movie a lot so she's she's gone she is they, they she just escaped she walked out we now are introduced to a, I would say, one of the main characters of the film, this Colonel Kane. I like him. I like his style. I like his style. I like his turtlenecks. I like him. Yeah, he's a very sensible, very direct. You know, he doesn't beat around the bush. He tells it how it is. He's very British. British. He's very aggressive with his questioning. Like he, he wants to get to the bottom of what the hell's happening. So they, when he shows up, they take him to show the, him the body of the guard. And he immediately starts to just like grill Dr. Bukowski about how in the world did you let a girl overpower you? 
Dr. Bukowski says, you just don't understand. Like it was like the power, she just gained power over me. And it was extremely intense. Colonel Kane says, was it sexual? And he, he's like, yes, very sexual. Like I can't even describe how sexual it was, but it was also horrible. Dr. Bukowski is also still going through it. Like he's covered in sweat. He's like tremoring. I mean, she is having a lasting effect on him uh, throughout most of the film. Like he always, he doesn't ever seem really okay again after she's had this experience with him. I don't think anybody that really encounters her ever feels okay again from what we gather, right? Uh, the same thing is kind of going on with Colonel Carlson. You know, he's he's also like very entranced and uh, connected to this girl, as we find out. But it seems like anybody that she comes in contact to that she um, that she does kiss or exchange life forces with, they become extremely fixated on her. And yes, this movie, these men are very sweaty. Like sweat is a prominent motif in this film. Like when you see a man sweating, you know, something's not right. A, we find out then through a phone call that the Churchill shuttle escape pod was launched. Well, and he says one line I really like, Troy, is he says uh, that she's the most overwhelmingly feminine presence that he's ever encountered. And I really like that this this species, whatever it is, is using femininity to its full power against these men and no men are really capable of fighting against it. They mentioned, like I said, they mentioned that they realized that the escape pod was launched. So somebody got out of the spaceship. They don't know who, or the, the shuttle. They don't know who yet they, they collected the tapes, but the tapes were all erased. There was nothing on the tapes. The only thing that survived was those glass cases that the bodies were, the naked bodies were in. And uh, Bukowski says it's basically because when they tried to study them and check them out, they were like not real material. They were like almost like a force field. Uh, and then he asks to be excused because like you said, he is just a sweating, trembling mess. Um, so you've got, meanwhile, you've got these two guards who are looking over the bodies and the two male we're, you know, learning to be are, are these energy vampires. I'm going to start referring to them as what they are now. They're energy vampires. We've seen it happen. So these two guards are looking over the bodies and all of a sudden there's this like massive eruption that destroys the basement facility. And so these two guards are attempting to shoot at what are these two male figures that stand up and they're nude and they're always blocked, unfortunately, but they do have this whole stalking scene towards the guards in which the guards just pummel them with bullets. And you do see their bare chest just becoming like destroyed like meat uh, with these bullets just tearing through them. It's pretty gory. It's it's a creepy sequence of them like just being unfazed by all these bullets going through them. And can we mention, yes, these two guys are model hot. Both of them are, especially the one. This one has this just very intense gaze and he's beautiful, uh, dark hair, blue eyes. Uh, yeah, I was like, God damn. I just have to say, I find it very disappointing. And, but this is typical, right? It's still, it still happens today, but I'm just going to make this statement about it, about how it's perfectly fine to show a female, right? Completely nude. I mean, boobs, vagina, everything that, that this, the female vampire, we see her nude half the film. However, 
as you mentioned, you don't see anything of the guys except their bare chest. Everything is strategically hidden the way they're walking, like their their bottom half is always covered. You don't even see their butt. So that kind of irked me because it's like, why is it okay to show the naked woman, but you can't give us even a glimpse of like these guys or asses or anything? You have to strategically hide it. Like, are you, what were you worried about? But again, it's the 80s. But then again, that still happens today. Like how many... How many examples of like male nudity, like full frontal nudity, can you think of in a film versus female nudity? Well, I'm here to change that, Troy. (laughs) I know. I know you are. But I'm just saying I was very disappointed, not because the guys were hot, uh, but I'm just like, come on. Like, it's so blatantly obvious what you're doing here. And I'm like, oh, it it irked me. I will say it irked me. Well, there's something to be said. And I'm not going to get off on a tangent. I'll keep it brief. But there's something to be said about as hot as it is to see a nude figure, there's also something very unsettling about using nudity in the right moment, uh, not for sexuality, but to cause discomfort in the viewer. There are a lot of occasions in which frontal nudity has actually, in my opinion, heightened the, the scare factor because of how exposed and revealed uh, certain characters come across in being nude. Or in this case, these two men, they're unfazed. They are you know, being torn apart by bullets, yet they're still marching towards these two soldiers uh, without even blinking. And I really think the nudity plays into that discomfort even more and probably would have made it even more uncomfortable if we would have seen a little bit of skin just to show the fact that they're unfazed by it, you know? Yeah, I just expected, like I said, the female, the female is nude throughout the film. And, you know, Toby Hooper is kind of a, I'll say he's kind of a visionary director. So I would expect that he would have been like, yeah, fuck it. You guys were showing, you know, we did it for the female. It's only fair you do it for you too. But alas, they didn't. Yeah, they're, they're sh- the, the two guards are shooting the fuck out of these guys with machine guns and it's not stopping them. So what do they do? They finally take grenade, hand grenades and throw them at these two guys and blow them to pieces. Uh, because what happens is Kane and Falada come in and see, and they, we don't see the like blown up bodies. They just make a comment about, oh, well, it's going to be hard trying to do an autopsy on all these different pieces of them, isn't it? They uh, decide they're going to instead do an autopsy on the guard that was killed by the female vampire earlier. So there is this whole scene where they're getting ready to do an autopsy. The, the dead shriveled figure is on the gurney. And as the doctor that's performing the autopsy gets ready to cut him open with the uh, scalpel, his eyes pop open. And what really makes this unsettling is the fact that these eyes are so human looking uh, and they are very, uh, they emote very well. And it just, it makes it very creepy because these things are just disgusting. And I really like this scene a lot because I think the effect is quite, quite exceptional when this thing sits up and starts pleading with the doctor to come over to him. You can see like tears in his eyes and he's waving the doctor to come over to him. Of course, everyone's freaking out because this thing looks horrific. I can't even explain what these dead bodies look like when they have the energy sucked from them. But this is such a standout scene for me. This is probably the best scene in the film. The The autopsy scene is probably the scene that I would say is 
probably one of, one of the most well-known sequences from the film, and, and understandably so. Uh, the puppetry effects here are just phenomenal. Uh, you're right, the little details, the the brows, how the brows move, how the lips quiver, how the eyes look about. Um, there's so many little details in the puppeteering that really just makes it surprisingly lifelike in certain ways, while still having a very larger than life kind of style to it because of the way these like these husks they're like husks of a body uh they're so dried out it doesn't really look like anything i could compare it to but i think that works in the favor of the movie because what's happening to them is something unlike anything we've experienced as humans you know having the actual life force sucked out of it so um you know he, he lures the doctor to him and he proceeds to start leeching the life force from his body and it's just this insane visual moment again i mean it's even larger than the last sequence with with the female this scene is really probably one of the scenes that just pops in the movie overall because it's just so big there's so much going on papers are flying everywhere lights are surging and he sucks the life force out of this this surgeon or out of this doctor until he is nothing but another husk i do like the fact that it seems like these creatures are able to seduce their victims sexually to come to them. And I, I have to appreciate, even though they don't ever go full force with it, that like in this scene and one, one a scene later on coming up with Patrick Stewart, that it looks like this doctor is being seduced by this creature, this dead guard, because as he gets closer to him, it looks like he's going to lean in and kiss him. Oh, he does in the shot. He actually does make contact for a moment with Patrick Stewart. He does. That is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I do like that, that they it doesn't really like they don't they don't shy away from, you know, two males being, you know, a male being seduced by another male and, and leaning in to kiss him because this is what this doctor is going to do. He's going to lean in and kiss this creature when the creature grabs him and, yeah, sucks the life out of him. And ultimately what it does, and this is such a great effect, too, is as he's sucking the life out of the doctor, we see him. I mean, full glory, camera does not move. We see him transitioning back to his normal self. And when he after, when he's done sucking all the life out of the doctor, the doctor is now the shriveled, dried up mess. And now this guard is back to his youthful looking self. And he seems so proud of himself. He's like smiling big time uh, before until he like realizes the situation he's in and all of the other doctors grab him the guards grab him and they give him a shot to sedate him and haul him off to isolation meanwhile a, a female body is found uh in a local park and she's showing the same symptoms she's dried up and shriveled in a similar fashion uh, and so they take her back to the the same medical station uh for further studies and and you you only see a hint of her here. You see way more of her, more of her later. But again, like it's a really well done effect. This body, like obviously, it's a puppet for a majority of what you see. But it's just so well done, and all of the details, the the blue and pink veins running through her skin, it's just terrifying. A really really eerie visual. It is, and I like. There's these two young guys that are that the police are questioning, like Kane and the police officers questioning them because they they say that they saw this woman with a a naked woman, and that they thought that they were. They say, well, we thought they were, you know, and we came back just in case they were doing anything, basically insinuating that they thought they were going to see some lesbian action there in the middle of the woods, right? But instead, they come back and find this shriveled body. Back at the facility, 
the guard that was turned back into um, the normal, his normal self is now in this room that they have him locked in. And he is convulsing and screaming as this, the doctors watch on. And eventually he disintegrates back to the shriveled dead body that he was before he sucked the life force out of the doctor that was going to do the autopsy on him. Falada, the doctor Falada has figured out now that it seems like the creatures, they need to get energy every two hours because he's figured out just by casually watching his watches, this, this, these creatures seem to need energy every two hours. And lo and behold, after the two hours, this guard dies, shrivels back up. Uh, He pokes it. Dr. Faladas pokes it with a stick and it just disintegrates. And it looks like it's filled with sand. Yeah. Yeah. It like oozes dust. It's so gross. And it's another really strong effect. The whole shot of the body, like dropping to the ground and kind of like basically like deflating uh, right before our eyes. It's really, really fucking creepy. And then uh, there's another creature that they have down already locked up downstairs and that charges them and runs towards the door because it's also in a cage. And when it does this, it hits the cage and it erupts into dust. It's another really, really cool effect. Yeah, we, we get three of these effects right in a row because after they go to that, when they go to the girl, the body that they found in the park, and this is the scene that reminds me of Return of the Living Dead. Right. They have and it, this creature, this female creature looks very similar to the creature from Return of the Living Dead. And guys, if you've seen Return of the Living Dead, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the female half skeleton that's tied to the table and they're asking it questions. And all she can say is it hurts. She can feel herself rot. This particular scene reminds me so much of that. And like I said, the the creature, the woman looks exactly like that blonde hair, everything all shriveled up. And the doctor is like looking at his watch and he's like, yeah, any second now, the same thing's going to happen to her. And sure enough, she wakes up. She starts like struggling against the, um, the, the, the restraints that are tying her down. She's like screaming and growling before she dies in a very dramatic way and then explodes into dust. I love that this scene is handled with, enough time to let it really kind of build um because it it's it starts off very simple she's you know she's just laying out on the table and then she starts to come to you get a really cool shot of her eyes opening up and looking around the room you see her start to like take in the moment and then she starts to react and then she starts to convulse and then she eventually blows up but the it's this is another scene that kind of scene that takes its time and and they don't rush through it and it really pays off. There's so many little details to this puppet. It's so well done. The little twitches in her lips, the, 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 the fuzzy little vagina. I mean, like it is, it's very, it's very detailed, but like, it's just, I would think, I would say that it's the best uh, puppet effect in the film. Yeah. It looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, In the meantime, they get a call from, Someone in Texas telling them that they found the Churchill escape pod. And when they opened it, lo and behold, Colonel Carlson from the opening of the film is inside alive and well. Yeah, he's pretty quickly introduced to uh, Dr. Falada and Colonel Kane. And, and he begins to recollect exactly what transpired. 
and I'm I'm thankful that they do a flashback to the the space sequences for a little bit because I would dare say that they're some of my favorite moments in the film when they let him kind of do these crazy like space sequences. There's not a ton of them, but they always look really interesting to me. Um, so we do get a little bit more of that here, um, but we do get some flashbacks that basically explain that one by one the crew begins to die off shortly after the bodies are brought onto the ship. Uh, it starts off with Rowlings, uh, who destroys a series of the computers in the, in the control room. And then after that, everyone starts to die off until Carlson's the only one that's left. Yeah, and he notices uh, that the shuttle is getting close to Earth. And he makes a decision that he needs to blow up the space shuttle because he wants to avoid bringing back to Earth the basically the vampires, the creatures. He knows what is causing this. So he sets the space shuttle on fire, gets in the escape pod, and it blows up. He he thinks that he destroyed them. He literally does until they tell him, well, we hate to say it, but all three bodies survived the blast and we brought him back here. And he's like, oh, fuck. He also makes the comment that leaving the spaceship because they say you you're so brave for what you did. Like that had to have taken a lot of, of courage for you to do that. And he's like, well, yeah, because leaving her was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. She killed all my friends and my coworkers, but I wanted nothing more than to stay with her. I mean, it just highlights that this, this girl's control over her prey well, and even continuing forward from here, because we go to a sequence where Colonel Kane is monitoring a sleeping Carlson, and he, he's ha- clearly having a nightmare. He's still being affected by it. And and so as he's monitoring him, he gets a report that this mysterious 150-mile-long needle-like structure has been reported to be leaving the orbit of Halley's Comet and is now heading towards Earth. Uh, and so you realize that, you know, now this is changing its trajectory. It is now specifically heading towards Earth, uh, apparently based off of what is now transpiring. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of things at stake right now. Um, and Tom is still dreaming. And he awakens to this like nightmarish vision, uh, which you really quick for a moment, you see the image of one of those bat creatures like rushing at him. Uh, it's only for a second. But it's, it's enough to make you kind of jump. It definitely got me when I first saw it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, yeah, he, he wakes up out of the nightmare. And he is, again, like this dude is drenched in sweat. He looks like he was dumped in a bathtub. I mean, sweat is just pouring from this poor guy. And he is like, I, she has control of my mind. And they're like, well, what was your dream? And he's like, I can't remember. It's, it's actually, it's faded, it's faded away. It's gone. So Dr. Falada offers to hypnotize him the next morning and Carlson agrees. So the next morning he gets hypnotized and he's able to tell the doctor that his mind is not his own anymore, that he is sharing it with this, this girl uh, and and he's able to feel so connected to her. Yeah. Well, this whole dream that he has leading into this, of course, they start getting very erotic and get naked. She mounts him. He starts groping on boobies. There's a lot of sexual imagery in this film. It's very prevalent, uh, almost aggressively so at times, the sexuality. Um, it does play directly into the story, but my God, do we? Uh, 
if I never see this girl naked again, it, it's too soon. Uh, because uh, you just see a lot of her boobs. A lot. A lot. But uh, overall, it does make for a, also a very creepy visual at times. But so now he um, he basically concludes that she has visited him through his dream because he has this mental link. And this is something that very much is a theme that runs throughout the rest of the film that once you've certain people have, you know, been touched by this kind of this presence, this vampiric presence that they are connected to them in a way. Yeah. Well, he's so connected to her that he is having, he basically can see under hypnosis. He knows where she's at. The, the doctor asks him, can you see her? And he's like, yes, she's walking in a field, but it's not her. Like she has a different face and they're like, well, what is she doing? And Carlson said, she's, searching for a man to draw energy from, but she doesn't want to kill him. She just wants enough energy to survive because she doesn't want to get caught. So she, she's starting to use a like reasoning. Like she knows if she kills a bunch of people that she, the trail is probably going to lead to her. So she's just going to use various men to get enough energy to survive for two more hours before she goes on to the next one. He's able to tell the doctor that this woman his name is Ellen and that she at the moment is watching this old man get into his car. She seduces him and she gets in for a ride. He's even able to give them the license plate number of the car. I like this plot, this whole angle of, of using the hypnotherapy to kind of strengthen, strengthen the connection between, you know, Tom and, and the vampiric entity because it allows for some really cool cinematic moments um, some of the shots leading into the hypnoti- um, the hypnotism sequence are really like fluid and trippy. There's a lot of dissolves. And then when you bring this presence of this woman, this new woman, Ellen, into play, they introduce her in this like black poncho against this like rich green rolling hillside. And it's just this very striking visual of her just trucking it along this hillside, just looking for someone. She's hunting for somebody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely like the fact that, I mean, it almost, it's almost like because she's wearing this black poncho and then behind her is like the, the vast like British countryside. And it almost reminds me of like, I don't know why I'm saying this, but it reminds me of like her being like a witch, you know, she's out in nature. She's in this black Cape and she's surrounded by lush green and she's on a hunt. It's very, it's almost like dreamlike, even the way it's filmed. It's, it's almost looks like a kind of foggy and, uh, she gets in the guy, this car with this poor guy and, and as he's driving, she starts to lift up her skirt and show him her panties and he starts touching her legs and Carlson is like telling the doctors this as it's happening and he's just like, sounds like he's almost having an orgasm as he's saying, oh, he's touching her. He's reaching up her leg. Oh, and then he kind of pops out of it. Yeah, I, I like this sequence because it is very, very eerie. Um, the whole single shot of her trying to pull her poncho up to reveal her lingerie. And it's all just this one shot as he's starting to get really emotional and break down over it. And it all kind of culminates in uh, the sound of the, the gentleman driving the vehicle, like swerving to miss an accident, almost causing an accident because he's so distracted. But it breaks the moment really well. I like this whole moment a lot, a lot. As the spacecraft is nearing Earth, Dr. Falata is investigating this mysterious sword 
that has been sent to him as a part of a, like a museum collection. And this sword does very much come into play. It's, a, it's, a, it's introduced kind of out of nowhere, but it serves a fun purpose. Like I'll live, I'll, I'll roll with it. Okay. So he begins to study some tissue samples that he's requested. Uh, when one of the soldiers appears, it's a very suspicious soldier who is made all the more suspicious by a very ominous stinger as the door opens. Uh, and it's one of the soldiers from earlier in the film. Yeah, it's yeah. It was kind of weird. It took me a while to figure out like why why does this person looking so sinister and like what's what's the deal here? Because uh, it does seem just kind of he just comes in the room. He's like, "Hi, doctor," and he just gives this very ominous look to him, uh, and then it just cuts away. And you're like, "Okay." The car that the gentleman in Carlson's vision is has been traced. And they find out that indeed a woman named Ellen was dropped off in this vehicle at a Thurston, Thurston hospital. So the three, the doctors and Carlson get on a helicopter and they fly there to check it out. And they meet Dr. Armstrong, who is portrayed by Patrick motherfucking Stewart. Patrick fucking Stewart. Yes. God, I love him. He's not in a lot yeah. of this, but God, he's such a presence. He is. He shows them the apartment that Ellen lives in. So Kane and Carlson ring her doorbell. She answers and they, they say, hey, can we come up and talk to you? She's kind of hesitant at first, but she lets them in. And right away, Carlson's like, hey, I want to ask you about your afternoon with that gentleman. I think his name was what? Will or Nell or something. It's just, I don't know what you're talking about. And Carlston is very aggressive with her. He grabs her hand. He's like, let me see your hand. And she's like, no. So he, he grabs her. Uh, and he just, this he begins like manhandling or he even slaps her at one point. Yeah. And this woman, like, you can't tell for sure at first if she really like knows what's going on. So you feel really bad for this gal. Like he's like grabbing her and tossing her all around. He's yelling at her. And she's like, what are you doing? Like she's, but finally, then it starts to reveal that as he's, as he's screaming at her, there's definitely like a connection. She's starting to connect with what he's saying. There's definitely still like a lingering presence inside of her. And it's enough to cause her to eventually faint. Well, it's, there's this weird scene where he, he's like, I can tell she's a masochist and she wants me to hurt her. So like, he like tells Kane, he's like, you, you better get out of here and, and let me handle this. And Kane's like, nope, I'm staying He, I'm a voyeur, I'm a voyeur at heart. So he's like, has a seat in the chair as uh, Carlson rips her nightgown off of her and is like, tell me, tell me, are you in there? Are you in there? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. And finally they kiss. And after they kiss, yeah, she, she pat, nothing happens and she just passes out. So I'm like, did he just sexually assault this woman? And right. Like, <laughs> which is, is like there, is it like her or is there like an alternate presence inside of her? Or did he just like really like violently manhandle this woman and borderline rape her? Like it is, it's strange. He does kiss her against her will. Um, but I mean, she ends up passing out and it's pretty clear that she's no longer under the effect of the space girl, which is actually how she's referred to in certain credits. And so, yeah, Ellen's passed out. And so the next step of the game is for the team to figure out, okay, well, obviously she's, she's transferred herself now to another person on the property. Who was it? And Tom says that, you know, when he connected with her for a moment, he saw the visual of what he begins to describe as to being one of the 
inmates within the hospital premises. And so they ask Patrick Stewart to take them to see this inmate because they want to interview him. They want to sedate him and they want to do a hypnosis uh, session with him. It is a child murderer, a big overweight bald child murderer with this huge birthmark on the side of his face named Sykes. Um, so they take him into Sykes' room and this poor guy is just trying to sleep. He's in a, he's in a straight jacket. He's just laying on his little cot in, in his you know room, snoring away. And one of the doctors, uh, orderlies brings in a, a shot of this drug that is like a pre-hypnosis medicine that they use to help induce hypnosis. So they, they're in the room and they, he gives the needle to Colonel Kane who proceeds to act like he's going to inject this poor overweight sleeping gentleman. But instead right away, Carlson grabs Dr. Armstrong and Kane proceeds to shove the needle into him. And we, f- we find out that this was an elaborate trick because they knew that it was Dr. Armstrong who is the one who has the girl yeah. inside of him now. Yeah, Tom says that earlier when Dr. Armstrong uh, placed his hand on his shoulder, he was able to connect for a moment and saw that she was inside of him. And so uh, they plotted this. I really like this twist. I didn't expect it the first time I saw this. Uh, and I love that Patrick Stewart is like, get off of me! Like he's flipping his shit. But they sedate him and they tie him down to a table. And this scene that comes from this is one of my personal favorites in the film. It's very creepy. It's it's almost bone chilling at times. As they start to talk to Patrick Stewart, he starts to respond. He releases this absolutely just like bone chilling scream, this wail of agony. Uh, and then he starts to take on her voice and speak with her voice. And it's very well done the whole scene and Tom is speaking you know to him as though it's her so then they'll occasionally cut to her in place of Patrick Stewart in place of Armstrong laying in the exact same position and it's just again it's this like ethereal like beautiful visual of her but she has such a menacing presence about her it makes for just a very eerie sequence and then, I mean, what she's saying to him through the Dr. Armstrong character, because they're going to give her another, they're going to give Dr. Armstrong another uh, injection of this medication. And through her voice, she says, there's no need for that. There's no need at all. And then she starts to tell Carlson that she wants to be with him and that she loves him. Uh, and that she basically got into his mind and is now part of him. And he is the reason why she is the image of what she is, because she is the woman that he's always dreamed about. Very like it's setting it up like this was kind of like fate, really. He slaps her and screams, and then they go in for a kiss. And it is Patrick Stewart. When we say her, like it really, even when you're seeing the visual of her, it is Patrick Stewart. So there's this whole very intimate conversation where at first Patrick Stewart is just basically saying that I've, I've used your ideal of a femininity to manipulate you this entire time. We're meant to be together. And then she's luring him closer and closer. And then you see him just, he's trying to fight against it, but he gives in and he, he leans in and gives Patrick Stewart a kiss on his supple lips. 
Yeah, he screams first. He slaps her and screams, "Let me go! Just let me go!" And but he he can't resist the urge. Yeah, he gives him gives her a kiss and then or gives Patrick Stewart a kiss and then the bolt of energy shoots out and knocks him away and things start flying around the room. It just erupts into chaos until uh, until Kane takes both two of the uh, the needles and, and and stabs them in the sides of Doctor Armstrong's neck. One thing I got to say, Troy, that I really have to give this film credit for is every time it chooses to do a big sequence, it goes balls to the walls. Like there is no half-assing it in Life Force. Let me be clear. Like when they're giving you a, a what is supposed to be a big sequence, they're throwing everything and the kitchen sink in it. Like this scene, like there's papers flying everywhere. There's there's all this chaos. There's, again, the blue lighting. At one point, the, the orderly like throws the door open and he's like, Oh my God. Like he's like reacting is. And then, um, one of their like assistants, I think his name is, uh, Dara bridge. He's, he's one of the, the, the medical research team that arrived at the hospital with the group. He gets hit by a piece of flying debris and his neck is broken. He's killed. Like he's killed right there. Yeah. It's poor, poor Sir Sir Percy who has some of the best facial expressions in the entire movie as he's watching this shit unfold. But yeah, now he's, now he's dead. Yeah, so it's a really, yet again, I mean, we're going to say this a lot because some of these big sequences are just phenomenal, but another amazing, well-executed sequence uh, that really just pulls out all the stops. Yes, yes. I mean, when this film, yeah, like I mean, we mentioned it earlier, when the film hit, it hits. They get on a helicopter. As they're flying back, we hear that the two male vampires from earlier, the two naked ones, they, they didn't show any dick or ass. They were not really dead. They, in fact, they jumped into the bodies of the guards who shot them. Um, and this is Dr. Falata's on the phone telling them this. He says though, that he was able to kill one of them with the lead sword that he was playing with earlier that you mentioned. He stabs him in the heart with it and it killed him. I love that this simplistic solution comes about. It almost makes me think of uh, similar outcomes to like films like Signs, where all it takes is water, you know. But I like that because these things wouldn't necessarily be prepared to like live in our environment, and there would have to be things that could be used against them. And I like it's as simple as as a, a simple of a solution as a steel sword stabbing it through there. Well, I mean, it's it, he even mentions it's like he he believes that this is where the legend of the vampire has come from because you know. How do you kill a vampire? You stab it in the heart with a stake. Well, in this case, you stab it in the heart with a lead sword and it, it is able to kill it. The other vampire, though, he tells them did escape. So there's going to be an issue there. Suddenly, and this is another really elaborate scene that's well done. Blood begins and they're on a helicopter. They're stuck on a helicopter. Blood begins erupting from the mouth, nose, eyes of both Armstrong and Sir Percy, who broke his poor neck, to form like this big blob in the sky, in the uh, air above them in the helicopter. And it ultimately forms into the vision of the the girl before like dropping to the floor, just busting into a pool of blood. Very well done. I mean, it's very well done. When When you see the blood like being erupting from their mouths and nose it, it looks pretty disgusting especially when you see the shots of um of, of sir percy 
um, because they use a really, again, another really good uh, kind of puppet effect for the, the the head of the corpse, but the eyes and the mouth uh, are, are releasing blood and it just, it's just very disgusting, super disgusting. And the whole formation of her as she like takes form in the helicopter and then she simply just like erupts into blood and the helicopter starts spinning around because the pilot's so terrified. Like they really uh, managed to capture some very tense moments in this movie. Oh yeah. This is, it's definitely a creepy unsettling visual. At this same moment, Carlson is drawn to reveal that it was him who destroyed the control panel and the tapes, not Rollins. He blamed Rollins earlier. He said it was him. He says he did not want people to know what happened on the spaceship. He is the one that opened her case and let her out because he's in love with her. She was calling him. And there is this whole flashback of him literally opening up her case and kissing her to give her some energy. And they're they're basically exchanging energy. And that is how he, he has become so uh, in tune with her. Every time these two make out in this movie, and it happens a lot, it is the most like aggressive, violent makeout I've ever witnessed. They're basically like eating each other's faces off. I mean, I get it. They're wanting each other's life forces. I mean, I guess that's how you go about procuring it. But um, there's a lot of just really aggressive makeout scenes between these two. Uh, but it makes for their connection to be extremely like palpable almost like it's uh, there's a lot of chemistry between these two. It's so electric because it has to be. They're drawn to each other. He's always just bug eyed and sweating over her the whole movie. And she's just looking at him with these big, big saucer eyes. Literally, her eyes are like swirls at times. And um, her effect over him is is just very, very all encompassing. As the further you get into the movie, it becomes more and more obvious just how much of an effect she has over him. Yeah. And she is very great at, at, at really projecting at least to him that she's really in love with him and that she really needs him. And I think that's another reason why he is so drawn to her because she genuinely seems like she needs him and that she wants him. The scene then is interrupted with a special BBC, B, BBC bulletin to say that London is under siege and is burning and being attacked. Uh, and we do see like glimpses of this happening. We actually see like the vampires in downtown London, like attacking people and like explosions happening. Buildings are being exploded. But now it seems like the vampires are acting very much like typical vampires. They're like biting the necks of their victims they're not like sucking the the life force out of people that we've like we've seen earlier. They literally have them on the ground and like we see several shots of them like biting the necks of all these poor people that are just happen to be out on the street in London that evening. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the overall like what is it exactly that that this this entity does to, you know, a human once they fall under the spell uh or under the the influence um, another thing I want to acknowledge is like, while all this is happening is the spaceship is now positioned over the earth. And so it's starting to collect the life forces from the humans. So I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is also bodies just being drained and becoming just husks. Cause at certain points you start to see the vampires just lining the streets and just completely starting to lose 
all motor function and ability to move because they're they're starting to just become drained completely because you just see blue surges of light all the time just bursting through the city you know uh, blasting whole areas of the town apart and then sucking it up and going up into this big beam heading up into the sky it's a really striking visual i don't know exactly i'm gonna be honest like i don't know exactly what's going on in that city to cause this vampire like outbreak uh, or why they're acting the way they do. But I also have to say that some of my favorite sequences in the film are the moments of just complete destruction and disarray going on in downtown London. So many movies try to capture these moments of just pure chaos. I honestly have to say, I think this is one of the best examples of like the downfall of society I've ever seen caught on camera because it is just fucking everywhere people are burning cars are crashing people are being killed people are being mauled heads are being exploded it is insane and i love it i love it it is yeah it's batshit wild and it's just so like grand. it's done to such a grand scale i mean you're seeing you're seeing like skyscrapers blow up and collapse i mean the streets are filled with these vampires that are attacking, you know, civilians, I, I guess I, I kind of, I don't know if I understand, like you mentioned, like at the beginning of the film, the vampires kill people in a very specific way, right? They suck the life out of them through a kiss. But in this scene, we see these vampires are now actually killing people in the traditional way that we would expect. So it's, I don't know. It was just an interesting choice. I guess it's just showing us that these creatures are such a, unpredictable we can't really pin them down to a specific what they are um because it yeah i mean it's it's just chaos and uh, yeah well done well done and another thing to acknowledge is sometimes you'll see movies like this where a lot of these uh extra creatures extra zombies whatever it may be um look kind of half-assed maybe don't look as effective because they're just part of the crowd. But every time you see one of these creatures on camera, the, I got to say the makeup effects are consistently horrifying. I think what really makes some of these sequences so effective is the fact that it's just everywhere you turn, like where do you go? How do you have any hope to survive? Because these things are terrifying and they are literally everywhere. Buses blowing up hordes of bodies everywhere i mean it's just fucking crazy it is and i want to know i also just have a question of how did so many of them appear so quickly because really only one of the original vampires escaped so they must be able to spread their vampire disease quickly because now like you said the whole city is full of them so where'd they all fucking come from i don't know um kane and carlson now are rushed into the war room to meet with the prime minister who comes out immediately. We know something's wrong because he is sweating like a fucking pig and he seems like he is disinterested in them being there. And in fact, he's like, you know what? I'll I'll talk to you in a minute. I got to talk to my secretary. So he calls this poor Miss Havisham, his secretary into his office and Kane and Carlson peek in and see him pull her behind this partition and, it's like Miss Havish and come here and grab her and like force a kiss on her to suck her energy out. So now he's a fucking vampire too. Oh, it, it, the society is crumbling like within hours. It's, it's pretty fucking quick how fast this takes over. 
Um, I do like that the blonde assistant, like when they come in, like the city is literally in the middle of disarray. We're getting these great miniature sequences of just towers collapsing, buildings blowing up. And then so they, they, they you know, land on the, hel- the helicopter lands atop the building in which the prime minister is inside and his assistant is so calm and collected she's like does anyone want tea and i'm like ma'am the city is burning there fear should be present in your face and she's so calm miss havisham uh she does get dispatched rather quickly and so i do like that once they notice this they just get the fuck out of there and they turn back and they start to see all of the soldiers and everything start to realize like within the building Things are now compromised. They're all just starting to realize it. And so those two fuckers are like, we're getting out of here before like we're caught up in this mess. Yeah. And they get, they, they get in their helicopter to escape. And actually as they're, the helicopter is departing two vampire monsters rush out and, and grab onto the helicopter and one's hanging on and he, he falls off eventually, but the other one, yeah. I mean, the other one gets pretty much in the helicopter with them until uh, Carlson can get a flare gun and shoot it with a flare gun. Ugh! One of I think the grossest effects in this Troy is the hand, like because these things, like every time one of these things starts to become one of these vampire creatures, their skin starts to kind of like bubble and and start to shed uh, as they start to go without life force for too long. And so the one of them is hanging on, and you see that entire hand, like the skin comes off like a sheath, and it's so disgusting. It's like a snake shedding its skin, uh, and it's like a glove hanging on to the to the metal of the helicopter and you see him drop but oh my god it's such a gross effect and then yeah you're right the other one getting blasted out of the helicopter by the flare gun is is a really cool scene again bring in every time every effect it's always so fucking wild in this movie london is now completely under martial law and the helicopter has landed at this like protected military base and as soon as Kane and Carlson get off the helicopter, they're thrown into quarantine because they don't know, you know, the military doesn't know if they've been exposed, if they're, you know, part of these vampires in the distance, they, they are watching as this blue light is just funneling into the sky, straight up into the sky, into that, into the large object that is now hovered above the city. And Carlson quickly is like, those are human souls that are being transported up into the, um, the spacecraft. And he says, I can hear her calling for me. She's, she's out in the, you know, she's over there in, in that building where we see the, the blue light coming from. And he needs to go to her because they need to learn the, the creatures need, or the, the, she's calling for him because she needs to learn what she can do with this new human form, because this is a new form for her. That's another thing is these things have taken fo- various forms over the course of their travels through the universe. And it's insinuated that this is the first time they have been like human form. So she's still trying to get used to the body and what it can do. So he's like, I got to go to her. So he escapes and heads out towards the large cathedral where this blue light is emulating from. Yeah. He has to get through this kind of long wordy monologue. There are, he has a lot of moments where he's just rambling for a bit, but he has this really long monologue leading up to this where he like gives a whole lot of exposition on what's about to happen and what's going on. Thank God he has this connection with her because we're getting through some serious plot points with Tom because otherwise it would just be like, what the fuck is happening? I'm so confused. Everything is in disarray. So Tom is really like a narrative tool 
he serves a really strong purpose, but he also like whenever you need to find out like backstory on what's developing or what's evolving, he tends to kind of kind of give a spiel on it. Uh, and sometimes it seems a little bit forced, but luckily here he has this big speech and then it leads into what is, I would say, I mean, like if you want grand finales, I'm sorry, like this, this is going to take some cake here. The finale of this movie, it's cuckoo bananas, bonkers, batshit. And there is so much happening, but it never lets up. It is just, just a barrage of just visuals and shocks and death and murder and just craziness. It's such a wild finale. I love it. He's driving towards the cathedral and as he's driving, I mean, it's the, he's driving through the chaos that is London. Uh, vampires are attacking citizens right outside his car. As he stops the Jeep for a moment, he's his Jeep is attacked and like all the creatures are trying to get in. So he has to drive through them to get to the giant church building where this blue light is, where he knows space girls at. And as he pulls up, we see there's just tons of dead bodies and these vampires just like lingering on the steps of this huge, huge cathedral. I love the fact that like gathered around the cathedral, it's almost as though like the husks of these bodies that have been the most drained of their life force because they're the closest to her. Because even when you enter the cathedral, it's just filled with still bodies. None of these vampires are able to move anymore because they're so drained of their life force. Yeah, it's it's quite a striking image as he pulls up and we just see like these hundreds of they're 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 like laying on top of each other. They're just all over. And you're thinking, well, how the hell is he going to get past them to get into this building? But in but but also they are like they look like they're dying, like they have no energy. They're not moving. Um, they literally have their life force drained from them. Colonel Kane goes back to the research center to find Dr. Falada in a room with the dead vampire that he has stabbed with that lead sword. And we can tell again because of his sweat and just the way he looks that something is not up with something's not right with Dr. Falada, right? He tells Kane the girl is in the cathedral and Kane's like, okay, but you need to get back because he starts walking towards him. He's like, no, no, get back, get back. And Dr. Falada is going to come and attack him. So he shoots him. So poor Dr. Falada has been turned into a vampire too. But this final moment with Dr. Falada, I think is in the terms of creep factor, one of the most effective scenes in the film. Uh, The way they handle this, it's so simple. They, there's so many big moments in this movie, but in this case, Dr. Falada, first of all, he's standing against this horrifying red, skyline in the distance of the city just burning so the whole room is filled with this really eerie like amber red color because of the fires in the distance and so he gets shot in the torso and he's like laughing over it and he drops to his knees and you notice his skin starts to like pulse and puff up and bubble and melt and he's grinning he's so happy about it and all he says is here i go and all of a sudden, his body just erupts into flame and his life force gets sucked right out of the ceiling. It's such a cool fucking scene. It is. It is. It's, it's, yeah, I do like the, the shot of like his skin starting to like bubble and contort before he actually dies. Um, Kane is smart enough to pull the sword out of the guard and take it with him 
as he heads back out towards the cathedral. And along the way, he does run into some, some of the creatures in the lobby. He gets past them. They're everywhere. They're so, there's armies They're of them now. running I mean, after they, him. These, these have to be like the fastest multiplying creatures in film history that's what makes it them scary from... troy they're they're full-on sprinting these things are like they're not like zombies that like stagger around and are slow these are like these are comparable to like 28 days later speed creatures uh if anything i think this would probably have been a template for what provided inspiration for how those things moved and acted because um they are at full speed and at, there are several scenes where um where he's fleeing from them and they're right on his heels and he only survives from sheer luck oh yeah he he heads to the cathedral as all of these vampires are on him and he has to fight them off and he gets in his car and he's driving there and they're just on him constantly coming coming from every direction jumping on the hood of his car i mean it's it's pretty intense in the meantime carlson gets into the into the cathedral and finds Space girl lying on a slab in the center of the cathedral. In the glamorous white dress. Now she's dressed. Thank God she is wearing, they put clothes on her. Uh, as Carlson approaches, she says to him, I knew you would come, Carlson. And she sits up, smiles at him, greets him. She tells him, I wanted nothing more than to be with you. I need you. It was destiny. Um, and in the meantime, I mean, we are treated to more of Cain being chased by these zombies. And as he gets near to the to the cathedral, we do see that the blue light is just now traveling through the city and just blowing shit up. It's just so crazy. Like built whole skyscrapers, whole buildings are just being blown up. The, The scale of budget that had to go into these sequences, like it's. It's such a bummer this film did bomb because like this movie makes the most of everything it has. When you see the chaos in in the streets of London, like you see every aspect of it. It is it looks like the city is literally crumbling before your eyes. Uh, And this yeah, these blue light sequences are terrifying because it's just taking out waves of people, uh, vampires, humans, regardless, they're all just dropping in its wake. Yeah, you know, and I looked up the the budget of this was supposedly twenty five million dollars, which for eighty five would have been a quite a bit of money, you know. And it's unfortunate because I think uh, Invaders from Mars also had a pretty hefty budget, and both of them were considered widely to be bombs. And I'm I'm wondering if that probably had the kind of negative downward effect on Toby Hooper's career because it was really hard for him to recover. I think from from the unfortunate lack lack of box office success from both of these films, because if you look at kind of what he did after this, it really wasn't a lot. Like the '90s wasn't really a he didn't really do much. It's unfortunate because I mean the artistry in this film is just off the page. You know, you can't watch this film and be like, "Oh, this filmmaker is horrible." I mean, there is such a level of carefulness and 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 art like i said artistry and just attention to detail that i'm just it just really is too bad that that the film did not do as well as it probably should have but it also opened the same weekend as coincidentally cocoon 
and cocoon like just slaughtered it at the box office i saw so isn't it funny though troy like isn't it uh, unique that the two films for him that kind of were like the nails and the coffin to a certain extent were his two extraterrestrial-esque films uh because think of it before this it was poltergeist you know big hit for him and then he has this and then he has invaders from mars which are two films that i adore to be clear like i really love this film i love invaders from mars as you know we've covered it before uh with one karen black and um i really enjoy the fuck out of that movie and it feels like a completely different movie from this movie and i think that's really 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 impressive the amount of growth that you see in toby hooper from film to film but if if this film does seem similar to any other in an occasional approach, I would compare it at times to an Invaders from Mars, just because of the extraterrestrial extraterrestrial elements to it. Yeah, and interestingly enough, his follow up to this was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, which, I mean, I know that's a very divisive film as well, and I know it didn't do as well as what expected because of, you know, it was a sequel to uh, a very successful iconic horror film and it just didn't strike a nerve with critics or audiences. It's a very divisive film. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I'm in the middle. I don't like the comedic tone that it carries through the whole thing. Um, But I kind of appreciate what he was doing with it. But yeah, I really think that it was like a trifecta of disappointments that led to his unfortunate not being given any significant projects after these three films unfortunately because i mean look at the 90s he really he did he did a segment for like body bags i think i mean a couple of tv movies and then it wasn't really until 2000s that he did something he did mortuary and um the toolbox murders yeah uh he had uh that dijin is that how you say it yeah i think so uh, yeah yeah that was his last one right yeah yeah. Kane gets up to the cathedral steps and he runs into the original male vampire from the beginning of the film. The one that must have escaped the really good looking one standing there. And he looks at Kane and he's like, it, it'll be much less terrifying if you just come to me. And Kane's like, okay. So he charges him and stabs him right through the fucking heart with a sword, killing him before he dies. He turns into like this winged creature, which is very, reminiscent of the creatures that we saw in the at the beginning of the film that the crew found like suspended in midair i like that they keep that going throughout the film because while this film does feel significantly more alien over you know over the course as it progresses it's very much rooted in the alien elements of what it is i do like that we do keep getting elements of vampire lore you know here and there um and i love that it takes this bat form this really well done creature effect uh with the blade sticking out of it before it erupts into dust uh yeah it was i think this movie needed a little bit more of that and i'm happy that at least they we got that one final big effect before the movie concluded you know yeah well he gets into the cathedral and he sees space girl and carlton now we're both naked Uh, we get to see we do get to see some male ass finally Steven rails backs, but yeah, I mean, Hey, it looked pretty nice. It was nice and firm, but they're, they're making out and kissing. He calls for Carlson. He's like, Carlson, try to resist. And Carlson reacts by like reaching up to him. So Kane throws him down the sword and without hesitation, 
Carlson takes the sword and stabs it through both of him, both of them. He stabs it through the girl, through her back, and it goes out of his back. They then basically shoot up into the sky, into the large penis looking spacecraft. And I mean, the film ends. <laughs> it ends so abruptly. It ends with uh, Collins. Or I'm, wait, what is what is it? It's, it's Carlson and Kane. Kane, I'm combining them together. It's so hard. I, there are so many. Yeah, there are so many characters that yeah. use their last names in this film. Yeah. So it, it ends with um, Kane like looking up at, at the spaceship as they rocket off to the spaceship in this beam of light, standing amongst like the the bodies and debris. Like these people are not coming back. London is ash. <laughs> like there is nobody left. Everybody's dead. There's so much disarray everywhere. Um, and it yeah, it just ends on this note of them flying into the spaceship. And then all of a sudden, like the credits start rolling and you're like, oh, my God, it's over. I'm going to say I, I was very disappointed with this ending, how rushed it was. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like the stuff leading up to the, the ending, like they're they're traveling through the city of London and seeing all the chaos happening. I'm talking about the actual ending of this film is so fucking abrupt like i was like okay i just sat through an hour and 45 minutes of build up to get to this well and i'm even going to say troy like it's not even a matter of what it ends on being bad it's a matter of it needed like another i hate to say give it five more minutes but give us a little more closure (laughs) it needed like he first of all my problem with the ending being as bru- as abrupt as is throughout the whole film, when we get introduced to this Carlson, Colonel Carlson, he is enchanted with the space girl. Like he, that's all he can think about. He very much at some points hints that he's in love with her and that he is drawn to her. I would have liked to have seen if they were going to pull off this ending, which I guess is pre- sort of predictable. Like I, I guess you could guess that she was going to get, but there should have been to to stay true to his character and how the character has been portrayed so far. There should have been a little bit of hesitation before he stabbed her and himself. Like I would have liked to have seen like him really struggling with, do I want to do this or do I want to be with her? Um, or, or, or even her like, like seeing that he has the sword and even her being like, no, no, I love you. I love you. I want you to, I want to be with you that we can be together forever. I mean, I know it sounds, that's super cliche, but so is this ending. So at least it would have given it a little bit more emotional. Oomph. Um, he doesn't even think twice about it. And to me, it just contradicts his entire character and the entire purpose for him to be even be in the film. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that for sure. It definitely feels rushed. I really like elements of it. Like, I love the fact that he does at least manage to lock into his humanity and make the choice to sacrifice both himself, you know, in order to kill her, um, because it makes for a very beautiful image, the visual of them being connected together with the single blade. It, it, it's a very striking ending, but I do hear you on that. I feel like once you get Kane arriving at the, um, the epicenter of all of this at the, you know, at the cathedral, uh, and he walks up and you, there's this big, uh, massive effect of the blue light busting up from the, the floor. And he peeks through the floor and sees them in the middle of making out aggressively yet again. I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I wish that Kane, being such a prominent character, would have had 
more of a moment with Tom leading up to this grand finale because I even I like the way it ends in the sense that I like what happens. I just would have liked to have seen a little more you're right conflict um in that final moment. It's so abrupt. It's so abrupt. And that's my really my only complaint honestly about the film and I guess it's a quite a big one because if if the film if a film ends and it leaves you feeling unsatisfied or cold I guess that's not a good thing because it's like I was thinking about it way too much I'm like I this ending I can't believe why would he why would he just automatically I don't know I I wish it would have been another two minutes of just give us something some emotional impact that we could have left the film with and therefore left a little bit more satisfied with the ending particularly because it is such a prominent prominent part of the film uh, uh, how much carlson is in tune with this girl and how much he loves her and needs to be with her it's just i don't know maybe maybe i'm interpreting or maybe him killing them so quickly was his way of like knowing that they'd be together forever i don't know i mean i guess that's a stretch but i guess maybe that's what they were going for but if that's what they were going for they did not do a very good job of making it clear but hey, overall, at the end of the day, I'm going to say like this movie, for all of the pitfalls, there are definitely, you know, issues with the story. It gets convoluted. Some of the edits are strange. The pacing it kind of weird. But at its core, it is a a, a visually stunning, uh, trippy, creative experience. It doesn't feel like anything else I can think of. It takes inspiration from other things, but it makes it completely its own experience. And, you know, for better or for worse, I do think at the end of the day, this movie is far more respected now uh, and celebrated now than it was upon its initial release. And understandably so, because it brings so much to the table in regards to practical effects, groundbreaking effects for the time, taking risks, I mean, this movie really delivers within the FX department. Some of these kills, some of these creature effects, some of these big moments are breathtaking. And for that alone, I urge our our listeners who have maybe not seen this movie, I urge you to watch it because it really is an experience to be savored. I was so impressed by the special effects and that I actually went on IMDb to see if it was nominated for an Academy Award for best visual effects because it, it certainly deserved it. Um, it wasn't, which is interesting because I believe, uh, I know Poltergeist was nominated for best score and possibly visual effects. So I was like, okay, these effects are so damn good. And if they're done by the guy that did the effects by for star Wars, there had to have been some, but no, it just seems like this film just opened and came and went. I'm glad I got to watch this film. It's a film that I would never would have watched. Otherwise, Roger, I'll be honest with you. It's just I would have read the description and been like, no, I don't really want to watch space aliens. I'm not a big space. I'm not a big alien film fan to begin with. There's a handful of them I like, but I thoroughly was impressed by this film. I dare say it's probably one of it's probably Toby Hooper's taking in consideration filmmaking as an art. It's probably his crown jewel of, of, of filmmaking. I mean, it's highly impressed highly impressed now now the story does drag i mean i can see viewer i can see some viewers getting a little bored 
almost a two hour runtime is going to be grating for some people, but I would say, yeah, give it a shot. I, I enjoyed it. It's such a beautiful film. That's all I can say. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad I got to watch it. I would recommend it. Though the ending, like I said, left me a little cold. I can forgive that because so many great things and so many great sequences happen throughout the film. I think that sort of make up for the rushed ending. Yeah. Overall, there's there's way more here to celebrate than there is to criticize or critique. Uh, definitely a film to be experienced. Um, and this is one I can see myself coming back to again and really revisiting with a lot of excitement because God, these effects, these effects, there's few movies I think that can compare with these practical effects, especially from that era. So yeah, definitely. Like you said, crown jewel of his uh, ability as a filmmaker overall. I I would agree on that because this just, yeah, no, I'm not before just people come for me and see like, Oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a much better film. Why would I'm not saying it's his best film. I'm saying looking at filmmaking as an art and you know, everything that goes into it and working collaboratively, collaboratively with a uh, cinematographer and a special effects artist and a composer and a screenwriter. I think that this film is probably, like I said, his crown crown jewel of illustrating what a great filmmaker he is. Yeah, the diversity in his catalog is, is, is something that does not get enough recognition, I feel. Hey, I mean, definitely worthy of our 70th episode. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. 70, Roger. We're 70. This is our 70th episode. Woohoo. God, 70. I mean, how much how much longer do we have in us? Oh, well, hopefully 70 more. <laughs> 70 more if you guys keep listening. If you keep listening, which seems you are, and you keep giving us nice reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, it'll definitely encourage us to keep doing this because, like I said, otherwise, you know, I mean, this is, uh, we love it, but it is time consuming and it just makes our week when we see a new five-star rating pop up and a new review. So if you've enjoyed what we're doing, you liked this episode, you liked any of our previous episodes, just take the few minutes to give us a five-star rating and review. And if that doesn't convince you, then I definitely think our 71st episode selection will, which I'm absolutely, we are probably going to be, we'll probably lose a lot of, <laughs> listeners because i know how much this film is hated um but i think i want to revisit it because i've not seen it since it came out it was one of the ones that absolutely loathed this film when i first saw it but it's the time of year it's may students are graduating high school what's going on during may for for high school students that is a memorable rite of passage it's prom but it ain't the prom you guys think or hoped for oh no (laughs) no no we hey we are not basic bitches right if we do something we're gonna do a little bit different than what everybody else does and you know the the original prom night is fine i mean compared to the remake it's a fucking masterpiece but maybe i'll have a different opinion and maybe you will hear that different opinion guys because our 71st episode is going to be the remake of prom night oh my god here we go (laughs) here we go i'm reserving my thoughts and opinions here we go we are probably having several people right at this moment hit the unsubscribe button (laughs) from our but no guys i have not i trust me i understand the hate for this film 
I just want to revisit it because I have not seen it for such a long time. And I think Roger, you know, is kind of in the same boat. So I think what, what better way to kind of revisit this bland, bloodless, suspenseless title than with Roger and see if our thoughts have maybe evolved or maybe it is still the huge piece of shit that I thought it was when I first saw it. I don't know, but I mean, you got, you maybe but, it was ahead of its time. Maybe it was. You got, Brit- <laughs> I mean, you got Brittany snow for crying out loud. I mean, I mean that, that on. right there gets two stars at least. I fucking love her. And Kellen Lutz. I mean, come on. Mm, I'm a like, so that's our selection. We hope, <laughs> we hope you'll enjoy it. So if you have not checked out the prom night remake in quite some time, it might be a good opportunity for you to do so, uh, so that you can listen to the episode and, follow along but yeah 70 71 prom night and again if you don't want to listen to that episode check out our patreon patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast <laughs> because there's plenty of alternatives for you there is that really going to be what lures them to the patreon hey guys we're covering prom night the remake <laughs> come give us money for what we do yeah. oh god here we go uh yeah we'll see we'll see what the reaction is all right but with that, guys, we thank you for listening. Again, leave us some feedback. Leave us suggestions for films you'd like to see us cover. Until next week and prom night 2008. We'll see you at the prom. We hope that the episode doesn't suck your life force out of you. <laughs> Maybe watching the movie again will suck the life force out of you. I'm talking about prom night remake. But hopefully we cut... we. We'll entertain you with our thoughts on it. But with that, good good night. Good night.